featuring medieval song contests, a riot, and more, Wagner's Die Meistersinger is not an opera to be missed. Learn more about this work on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Though thought of as Wagner's only comic opera, Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg can also be seen as an artistic manifesto. With a six-hour running time, Die Meistersinger is the longest opera in the Metz repertoire. I'm Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we welcome Guild lecturer Desiree Mays for the first of two episodes on this epic opera. Good morning, good morning. Actually, I have a better way of saying good morning to you today. Uh, Stuart, let's, uh, let's roll. Good afternoon, everyone, and greetings from Box 44 in New York's famous Metropolitan Opera House. Yes, the opera season is underway again in America's most famous home of music drama. And starting this afternoon, the National Broadcasting Company and its associated stations are once again making it possible for radio listeners to join the 3,000 Opera House ticket holders once a week in hearing the world's finest operatic music and singers. This is the ninth consecutive year of NBC Network broadcasts of Metropolitan Opera performances. Ever since December 1931, we have placed our sensitive microphones here in this beautiful and age-mellowed hall, some concealed in the footlights and some high up near the top of the gold proscenium arch, so that we may uh, have uh, performances in their entirety just as they are given for the subscription audiences and standees who flock to this mecca of great music. You all know who that is, yes? Milton Cross. Milton Cross from the old house in 1939. He was introducing De Meister Singer down there, and that's how he greeted his audience for many, many years. He was the voice of radio for, uh, for the Metropolitan Opera. Let's jump in with the music, the prelude to De Meister Singer. <laughs> That is an older recording, of course, but it is Erich Leinsdorf conducting at that 1939 uh, performance. So 
time stops still with opera, right? Um, th there's no such thing as time. There was 1939, here we are today, still seeing this amazing opera. So we, I have a, so much to cover in this. Um, it, it's, it's a big topic, but the idea of opening sort of appealed to me at some point. And first of all, I'm going to run over these questions, and then we'll talk about them later. What is involved in being open to all things Wagnerian? Not everyone is, as you know. To the man, the music, and his impact on opera over the years. When did Wagner's music first connect with you <clears throat> or not? Did you come to these performances with an open mind? What does the experience of Wagner and his music mean to you? What is it about Wagner that resonates so deeply with people that they crave, we crave, for more? Is the music more enriching, rewarding, powerful, and meaningful the more we hear it? That's an interesting question. That applies to all opera, of course. How is Wagner relevant to us today? We're going to pick some things out of this production. You may answer that. How can opera in general guide us to being more open to experience, both in and out of the theater, in art, in poetry, architecture? How can it have an impact on our personal lives? Openings, are we open to the experiences we are exposed to on opening nights? Are we open-minded as we take our seats in the theater, leaving our biases outside? We may have heard things about the production we're about to see. We may have read critiques, whatever it is, and thinking, oh, I'm not going to like this. I think we have to make up our own minds and be open to whatever comes. Are we truly present for the experience about to unfold? Uh, that's one of the real reasons I think great overtures are important, because it gives you time to get yourself from the craziness of the day outside, from parking the car, just getting to the theater, sitting in your seat, and then having time to just let go and give yourself up to that experience. <clears throat> there is significance found in everyday life, of course, which is involved in just opening a window or opening a door. How do we approach these seemingly simple acts? What might we find on the other side of the door? What's on the other side of the window? What's in the book? What is inside the opening of those curtains on stage? Opening a book or opening ourselves up to a performance might reveal or stir up in us different feelings, different ways of thinking are presented uh, on many levels, externally and internally, both on the stage and as we sit in our seats. For instance, think of the opening, I love this, of Star Trek with its mission statement, which is a sort of a a topical memory right now that William Shatner is literally flying into space finally, going boldly where no man has gone before. Wagner broke through those boundaries with his music, and this is nowhere better stated than in this opera, which is about the choice of adhering strictly to the rules of music or opening up and allowing the creative impulse to happen and be expressed. This is one of the core issues in this whole piece. How Wagner asks in the opera to find that middle ground sac without sacrificing the rules while allowing creativity to be expressed. What are the boundaries as to what we may or may not do, and how do we push those boundaries? Opening implies risk-taking, the risk of success or failure, two sides of one coin, really. On the positive side, don't we all typically go to the theater 
filled with expectation, filled with hope that the magic will come together in this one performance. And when it does, what joy, what an affirmation of all that the theater arts give us. Carved into my psyche personally um, and first encountered as a teenager when I, when I was a student in London going to Covent Garden, of that moment when the great red and gold curtain lifted and then raised sideways and a little cloud of stage dust with its centuries of stage smells escaping from under the curtain. All my senses remember these precious moments before a performance, opera or ballet. At the Met, that experience is to this day reinforced by the great chandeliers that rise into the ceiling as the performance is about to begin. We've all had those wonderful hair-raising moments where you sit there and they, they lift and you know that you're in some special place. So as we go through today, focusing on Die Meister Singer, think about the openings we discover in the experience of music, opera, theater. So today, as I said, I'm going to cover a lot of ground. First, I will talk about the story of the creation of this opera, uh, the process of composition, which will lead into a glimpse of King Ludwig's involvement with Wagner and his operas. Then I wondered about the Meistersingers of the Middle Ages. Who were these men? And how did Wagner use them as the model, the center of the opera? I'm going to look at some depth in the, at the characters of Hans Sachs, Eva, and Beckmesser, focusing on the duets between Sachs and Eva, which I feel are at the heart of the opera. I'm going to contrast for you a couple of different productions to show you how various concepts have evolved over time. And to finish, I have a surprise interview that I did especially for you with a, a Wagnerian director who was here at the Met for many, many years. So there'll be images and DVDs and CD excerpts, um, all produced by my husband, Peter Hull, who is safely at home in Santa Fe, um, and Stuart, who is making it possible here. Thank you. So what was happening to Wagner in 1845? He and his wife, Minna, were struggling financially, living in Dresden and constantly at odds with the Dresden court where he was the Kapellmeister. The 32-year-old Wagner was taking the cure in Marienbad that year, trying to obey doctor's orders and do no work. He could read, however, and he absorbed the legends of Lohengrin and Parzival. He found a book by Jovinius on the history of German literature he learned the story of the real Hans Sachs and the Meistersingers. Wagner wrote at the time, I fashioned for myself a vivid picture of the Meistersingers of Nuremberg and of Hans Sachs. I was intrigued by the institution of the marker and his function vis-a-vis -vis the Meistersingers in general. I invented during my walks an amusing scene in which the cobbler Hans Sachs, as the popular artisan poet, teaches the marker a lesson with blows of his hammer on the last, making him sing and thereby wreaking revenge on him for his pedantic misdeeds. To this picture, I added the narrow, twisting streets of Nuremberg with neighbors and a street fight, and suddenly my Meistersinger comedy stood before me. The process of the song contest captivated Wagner's imagination for many reasons, as we'll see and hear. 
But then 16 years were to pass before Wagner returned to his cobbler poet. In the interim, Wagner brought to the stage Lohengrin, finished the prose outline of The Ring, composed Das Rheingold and Die Valkyrie, and much of Siegfried, stopping at the end of Act Two, when he switched to Tristan und Isalde, and then in 1861, he took up Die Meistersinger once again. That's a phenomenal amount of work in that short space of time. <clears throat> he and his wife, Minna, were separated by this time following the debacle, a crisis at the Wesendonk Villa, which is a whole other story. But they continued to write friendly enough letters to one another. There's a particularly touching anecdote that I found in the collection of the Borel letters between Minna and Wagner, uh, which gives a little insight to the man as a, as a human being. This one from Ricard to Minna <clears throat> on August the 1st, 1862, on the progress he was making with this opera. I can only write a little because Leo has bitten me on the thumb of my right hand. It did not make a big wound, but robbed me of the use of my hand for several days. Minnow wrote back three days later, that awful, ungrateful Leo bit you. Do be careful with him. You can never trust old malicious bulldogs. Let me know that your poor hand is all right again. To which Ricard replied, my hand is not better, but the thing is not in the least dangerous. Don't worry about Leo. He was not mad at all when he bit me, just frightened because I wanted to wash him. And these dogs are especially sensitive on the back, as I didn't find out until too late. <laughs> That's a very sweet uh, human side of, of Wagner, I think. Uh, he and the family always loved and were surrounded by dogs. From, well, actually, there'd be a great talk, topic at some point, Wagner, his, his dogs. In 1862, he wrote to his music publisher, Schott, the opera is called Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg, and the main hero is the jovially poetic Hans Sachs. The subject is rich in good-natured drollery. I have hit upon something quite unexpected and singular. On this occasion, I need neither a so-called leading tenor nor a great tragic soprano. He was so happy to be without a great tragic soprano the result was that the soprano in Die Meistersinger Eva has no real aria of her own, which is a surprise. And come to that, there's no big love duet between her and Walter the tenor either. They simply make eyes at one another, hide in the bushes, and generally sigh with love and longing. There is no Brunhilde Siegfried-style duet in this opera. Wagner read the tales of Jakob Grimm and the Nuremberg Chronicles by Johann Christoph Wagenseil, which described the rules and the regulations of the medieval crafts and guilds. He also read, <coughs> excuse me, everything he could get his hands on regarding the real Hans Sachs. Wagner worked on a number of prose drafts. He wrote the poetry, libretto, as well as the music for his operas, as, as you probably know. And gradually, Hans Sachs became the central character in the work a character with whom Wagner himself identified, both men struggling to be creative artists in conflict with the world around them. Aside from the comedy, the love interest focuses on Eva, who plays a multifaceted role as the obedient daughter to the goldsmith Pogner, her father, who has decreed that the winner of the song contest will win the hand of his daughter if she accepts the winner. 
No, too, if she does not accept the winner, she may not marry at all. It's a bit of a tough choice for Ava in this situation. And today I think we have a problem with the mere idea of a father selling off his daughter to the highest bidder, or in this case, the best singer. But that's as maybe this opera is sent, uh, set a long time ago in the 16th century. Women have improved a little and um, made headway since that time. <laughs> Ava has been fond of Hans Sachs ever since she was a child and at one point suggests that if he won the song contest, she could marry him. More on that interaction later. But at heart, she is a young girl who has fallen in love with a nobleman known as Walter von Stossing and is determined in her way to accept only Walter as a husband, even if she has to elope with him to become his wife. Then, in May 1864, the miracle happened when King Ludwig II of Bavaria came to the throne and to Wagner's rescue. Let's look now at the role of this mystical, magical, fairy tale king in Wagner's life the man that we have to thank for making possible all of the extraordinary operas we know, love, and enjoy to this day. In May 1864, Wagner was in Stuttgart, where he had fled to escape creditors. In the spring of that year, the 18-year-old Ludwig had come to the throne of Bavaria following the death of his father. In love with Wagner's works, ever since he had seen Lohengrin's when he was an early teenager, Ludwig summoned the composer to Munich at once and became his protector immediately. Here is part of an account of what happened when Wagner was told of the king's <coughs> offer. Wendelin Weisheimer, a friend and colleague of Wagner's, reported that the emissary from the king had to insist that Wagner meet with him. Wagner at the time was depressed and suspicious and not about to open his door to anyone he didn't know. Here's what Wendelin reported. The meeting went on and on, and when the gentleman left, I was able to return to the room. Wagner, completely overcome at the change of fortune, showed me a valuable diamond ring from the king and on the table a portrait of his majesty. That this should have happened to me, he cried, and that it should happen now. Beside himself with happiness, he threw his arms around my neck, weeping uncontrollably. A miracle more or less out of the blue. Wagner went at once to Munich to meet the king and reported, he is so handsome, so great in spirit and soul, so glorious that, alas, I fear for his life, it will effervesce like a fleeting dream of godhood. He loves me with the intensity and fire of first love. He knows all about me and my works. He understands me like my very soul. He wants me to stay near him always, to work, to rest, to have my works performed. Ludwig promised Wagner, quote, the mean cares of everyday life I will banish from you forever. I will procure for you the peace you have longed for in order that you may be free to spread the mighty wings of your genius in the pure air of rapturous art. Thus was the tone of the euphoria of that first meeting. In October, Wagner took up residence in a magnificent house in Munich, paid for by the king. 
The king paid off his debts, gave him money for the move, and gifted him thousands of gulden. In the succeeding months, the money gifted to Wagner, along with his unsolicited advice as to how to run the country, so infuriated the royal ministers that they pressured the king to have Wagner banished from court and Munich. There was also a public outcry from people who believed that this was a homosexual relationship, for the young king was gay and clearly in love with the older composer. Then there was the problem of Cosima. She and Wagner were having a passionate relationship at this time, though she was still married to Hans von Bülow, the composer and Wagner's close friend. Ludwig knew nothing about the affair at the time, but finally, years later, he did have to acquiesce to the urgings of his ministers and Wagner had to leave Munich. He set up house at Treibchen on Lake Lucerne in Switzerland. The house was paid for by Ludwig. Ludwig even offered to abdicate the throne for love of Wagner. Quote, if the dear one so wishes and wills, I will joyfully renounce the crown and come to him, never to part from him again. I long for your answer. What Ludwig didn't know was that Cosima had all but moved into Treibchen with her own two daughters and a daughter fathered by Wagner. When Ludwig arrived unexpectedly at Treibchen sometime later for Wagner's birthday, he announced himself as Walter von Storsing, the noble knight in Die Meistersinger, come to learn from the mentor master he loved, only to find that Cosima was already installed there. Wagner sought to convince the king that she was merely an assistant. Ludwig closely identified with Walter, the knight in this opera, seeing himself as the young knight come to learn at the feet of the master Hans Sachs slash Wagner. In Ludwig's dream world, he often identified with the heroes of his beloved Wagner's works, suggesting he was in love with the myths and the music first and foremost, and Wagner was the means through whom the stories came alive. Thus, he arrived at Wagner's door as Walter calling on Hans Sachs. There's great poignancy and sadness, I think, in that little story. Ludwig also identified with Lohengrin, the holy knight of the Grail, come to rescue Elsa von Brabant, just as Ludwig had rescued Wagner and elevated him. Parseval, too, was very personal for Ludwig as the compassionate knight who becomes the Grail king, even as Ludwig was a king, if one rooted in a fairy tale past. There was a kind of love, I think, between the king and Wagner. Both loved medieval myths and legends. Both imagined themselves as knights of chivalrous orders, and they wrote to one another in truly flamboyant terms. My adored and angelic friend from Ludwig, and my most beautiful, supreme, and only consolation from Wagner. Both men lived in a world of dream and fantasy. Wagner was given everything he wanted by Ludwig, and he wanted a lot, I promise you. But he was stretched in trying to keep these two relationships apart, denying Cosima to the king and the king to Cosima. While Ludwig, always a little out of touch with reality, loved Wagner 
and Wagner was not about to disenchant him. When Wagner returned to the composition of Die Weissersinger, Meistersinger once more, he remembered, quote, the vivid picture of the Meistersingers of Nuremberg and Hans Sachs. His original ideas were presented in 1861 and underwent many drafts until he arrived at the masterpiece we know today. As Wagner worked on the character of Hans Sachs, the role evolved, <coughs> making him the leading character at the heart of the opera. Sachs became the voice of Wagner himself, skilled, creative, independent. The premiere of Die Meistersinger was held at Munich, the Munich Court Opera in May 1868 with great success. From this time on, Wagner and Cosima lived together. And even though he was aware of the affair, Hans von Bülow, Cosima's husband, actually conducted the premiere of Die Meistersinger. Then he left Germany and sued for divorce. Once the divorce came through, two years later, Wagner and Cosima were married. The king, however, continued to support Wagner through the years, later footing the bill for the theater at Bayreuth and the villa where Wagner and Cosima lived with their children, the Villa Wanfried. When the court rejected Wagner's plea for funds for his final opera, Parsifal, Ludwig wrote to the master, our plans must not founder. Parsifal knows his mission and will do everything that lies in his power. Ludwig came through for him once more. No, no, he wrote, it must not end like this. The money was forthcoming. Finally, in 1880, Wagner conducted a private performance of the prelude to Parsifal for the king, and this was to be their last meeting. Ultimately, Wagner lost favor with the king, who could no longer ignore his faults, his misinterpretations, and his lies. His ministers over time came to view Ludwig himself as mad and maneuvered to have him diagnosed as such. Ludwig left to posterity amazing castles filled with images of medieval times and scenes from Wagner's operas. First of all, Neuschwanstein, uh, which was started in 1869, filled with paintings and images of medieval myths and Wagnerian operas. The great hall in this, in this uh, castle is the Wartburg from Tannhäuser. <clears throat> this scene here is um, the dressing room at Neuschwanstein, and there are images from Die Meistersinger in this room. And the next is of the hunting lodge Lindendorf, which is an absolute gem of a place. And then uh, Heron Kimsey from 1878. Uh, this palace is monumental, enormous, gorgeous, uh, is built on, uh, on an island uh, in Lake Kimsey. It was in this palace that um, Ludwig designed this, his bedroom. You know, for all the criticism that Wagner took about, um, uh, uh, the king took about giving Wagner all this money or giving this, this musician all this money, it was only a fraction of the cost of this particular room. This was a chamber he slept in, in Ludwig in 1884. And it was here in this room that he was arrested on the 9th of June, 1886. He died 10 days later, mysteriously drowning in a boating accident in Lake Starnberg at 41 years of age. His death came three years after Wagner's death in Venice. 
This was the tragedy of Ludwig, who came to be known as the fairy tale king, whose love and support of Wagner never foundered. And we have him to thank, as I say, for the operas. So now let's change gear a little bit and turn to the tradition of the 16th century, the Meistersingers. Next is the image of St. Catherine's Church, the first set we see in the opening of the opera. This is from a set by Wieland Wagner, uh, Richard's grandson, from Bayreuth in 1956. Much more real idealized set than his grandfather had envisioned in the original. So who were these Meistersingers with their tradition of their Singschule that was so popular in Nuremberg in the 16th century? In the Middle Ages, there had been a tradition of minna singers or troubadours who traveled from court to court where they performed and sang long epic poems, poems of courtly love, such as Tristan und Isolde. That started out as one of these poems. But by the 14th century, they'd fallen out of popularity, and in their place arose a system of artistic exchanges and contests by burghers and artisans, often with prizes offered by, by uh, wealthy patrons. In the mid-16th century, the time in which the opera is set, Nuremberg was at its peak of glory, run strictly by a court, uh, by a council, not a court. Nuremberg was divided into patricians, the nobility with wealth and property, and the bourgeoisie, which was comprised of prosperous craftmasters and small merchants, the class of people from which the Meistersingers came. The council regulated every detail of their citizens' lives. Musical societies or schools became popular to bring together musicians to church services, to play instruments, and sing vocal music of an uplifting nature. These schools, too, were tightly governed and structured. The music society, the Meistersingers at Nuremberg, became the most famous of all in Germany. They believed that their music came directly from King David, the musician king of the Old Testament, and their duty was to uphold the tradition of his art, a noble aim. Competitions were held monthly at which competitors sang songs according to the rules laid down by the society. The most accurate singer won the prize. Singers were assigned a song on a religious theme and were judged by four merka, or markers, who marked down the faults with chalk on the chalkboard. Any mistake incurred penalties. When everybody had sung, the singer with the fewest penalties won advancing up the Meistersinger ladder. He was crowned with a gold medallion, medallion or a silver chain. Johann Wegenseil, Wagner's main source, left a detailed description of the workings of these schools. In Nuremberg, the meetings were held in St. Catherine's Church, which I don't think exists now, but it was then. Uh, it was on festival days and after or between services. A tall box on one side, surrounded by curtains, was for the markers, as in the opera. The Meistersingers sang from a special chair. Line by line, the song would be adjudicated. There were numerous rules, many of which David, Hans Sachs' apprentice, recites in the first scene of the opera. Obedience to the rules was of primary importance, 
over the song and the music itself. The names of the men who were, were recorded in the minutes of the council meetings, that's why we still have them today. Wagner uses these same names for his Meister singers. And now we have an image of Hans Sachs from this period, the most famous of all Meister singers. He lived between 1494 and 1576. Born in Nuremberg, this man had been the son of a tailor of the upper middle class. He was apprenticed to a shoemaker in 1508, and as a journeyman, he traveled from one German town to another in the early 1500s. Simultaneously, he studied Meistergesang and the Singschulen, the German art of singing original poems to original tunes according to the rules. In Nuremberg in 1517, he attained the rank of master in the Shoemakers Guild. These years in Germany were dominated by the reformation of Martin Luther. Nuremberg found itself torn between new Protestantism and the Catholic Church to which it had been committed for a very, very long time. Hans Sachs declared himself in favor of Martin Luther in the poem Die Wittenbergische Nachtigall, The Nightingale of Wittenberg. The opening eight lines of this poem were used by Wagner at the entrance of Hans Sachs in the final act of the opera, and I'll play them for you. Sachs produced works in profusion. It's amazing. 4,000 Meisterlieder, 208 dramas, 85 Shrovetide plays, and many rhymed orations and verses. During his lifetime, three volumes of verse appeared and two were issued posthumously. So he was a major personality of the time. After his death, he reappeared as the hero of a play entitled Hans Sachs in 1827, and Hans Lortzing wrote an opera about him in 1840. But his greatest lasting claim to fame, without question, was bestowed on him by Richard Wagner in this opera. As an aside, the tradition of song contests continued through the centuries, ending roughly around uh, World War II. It went on a long time. The tradition in a slightly different form does still exist in Wales in the very old tradition of the Eisteddfords. These are annual song contests still, still in place. In Ireland, there is a similar annual tradition of the Fesh Kill, the music festival, in which every musician and schoolchild participates each spring. I remember as a child when I was in Ireland, where I was born, entering the endless and nerve-wracking for an eight-year-old Irish dance competitions, wearing a short pleat, green pleated skirt with a white blouse and black shoes. My uncle, who was a wonderful pianist, won piano competitions for years. The prize was generally a grand piano. He ended up with six of them. <laughs> that was a real dilemma. The competitions were and are still, I suppose, a way of life of music and song in the Celtic lands today. If you're there in the spring, you can catch them. Anyway, just a little very brief short example now of a Welsh high school girls choir. The winners are in 2012. Thank you. <clears throat>
So now back to the Mises singers. Wagner took Wagenseil's Nuremberg Chronicles and much, wrote much of what he found in these chronicles straight into the opera, including the rules of the school and the names of the singers. These men were all members of well-respected guilds, and they built up their tabulata, or their rule book, as it's called, over a period of years, in an attempt to maintain the purity of their language. High German was required, no colloquialisms, and only rarely was a local dialect allowed. All of the faults had names, something like 32 names for faults, rhymes and syllables, and the singer had to meet the requirements. Trouble was that any type of creativity in terms of music or poetry were all squelched by this strict ritual. Verses and stanzas had to adhere to the rules. Two identical verses, or stollen, had to be followed by a longer abgesang, or ensong, a piece longer than the first two. But Wagner, let's not forget, was writing a comedy, not a diatribe about the stifling of art because of archaic rules. With this in mind, bit by bit, the story grew in Wagner's mind about Walter von Stossing, a nobleman who comes to Nuremberg and wants to win Eva, the son of Pogner, the goldsmith, not with a sword, but with a song. Pogner loves music and has put his daughter up as the prize to the winner of the Master Singer's concert. The day before the contest, it looks as if Eva might be carried off by the bad-tempered Beckmesser, the town clerk. But never fear, this opera does have a happy ending, that in the course of one glorious midsummer's day, the hero wins the song contest and carries off the prize, Eva, with the help of the wise Meister singer and town cobbler, Hans Sachs. This actually, in a nutshell, is the entire story of Die Meistersinger. So, did you ever think about this? How does a composer choose names for his characters? It's very important names. In the early drafts, for instance, Wagner named Walter von Storsing Conrad. Conrad von Storsing, I don't know. Pogner was burglar. Beckmesser was first named Hanslick, but then changed to Sextus Beckmesser, an actual name, and we'll talk about why. The soprano was first named Emma, uh, but she became Eva, after Eva, the second child of Wagner and Cosima, who was born during the composition of the opera. <coughs> Wagner composed the famous nine-minute prelude in 1862, long before writing the rest of the opera. In it, one finds the most important elements of the work. The opening fanfare, which we heard, describes the grandeur, the self-importance and sense of honor associated with the Meistersingers. The great march of pomp and circumstance describes the pageantry and glory of these seekers of pure art. This is a major theme, of course, throughout the opera. Pogner and Sachs represent all that is best about the Meistersingers and their traditions, their genuine love of art for its own sake, and their pride in their beloved city, Nuremberg. The characters were described in music even before the libretto was written. This is a complete departure from Wagner's usual method of writing. He always wrote the libretto first, then composed the music. Only Hans Sachs is missing from the prelude. It's interesting. 
His role grew as the years passed when Wagner elevated him from a mere observer to becoming the central focus of the work. The prelude, I think, is one of Wagner's milestones, for it reflects the decency, the worthiness, and importance of the tradition of music and art in any community, along with presenting a case for creative impulses of the musician or the singer to move the art forward. This I'm going to play you now is a little part of the section, middle section of the prelude, which first introduces the famous prize song melody. Just in that snippet you hear, you have that wonderful sense of the grandeur and the pageantry of this marvelous music as it opens the opera. So the opera set, as I said, in the Church of St. Catherine, which was where the real Meistersingers met. Eva and her maid or chaperone, companion, however you want to call her, Magdalena, who's also called Lena in the production, um, they're both at the end of a service in the congregation when Eva catches sight of the young knight, Walter von Stolzing. The young couple had actually only met the day before. To his disappointment, Walter learns that Eva is promised in marriage the next day to the winner of the song contest. If Walter is to win Eva, he must become a Meistersinger and learn the rules of the contest, rules about which at this point he knows nothing. He meets the young apprentice David, Magdalena's fiancé, who instructs Walter on the rules that must be met if the contestant can become a Meistersinger. To be chosen was a great honor. The members of the society were artisans. Sachs is a cobbler. David is his apprentice. Beckmesser is the town clerk. Pogner, a goldsmith. The others comprise a furrier, a tinsmith, a grocer, a soap boiler, stocking weaver, and coppersmith. Jobs we don't have today, right? They all belonged to different guilds which made up the community and were highly respected. They were not of the nobility. So when Walter von Storsing shows up, he does present a bit of a problem because he is not an artisan. He was not of their ilk. David instructs Walter on the rules, however. Each song must have two verses of Stollen, which are of identical length with a similar melody. Then comes the resolution, the third section, the Abgesang, which is as long as the first two put together, with an entirely new melody. Klothner the baker reads the rules again the next day, and we are not allowed to forget these rules throughout the course of the opera. They are referred to in all three acts. 
What Wagner did with this medieval structure, however, is extraordinary. Always criticized, especially in the early days of his career, for ignoring the rules of music himself and striking out on his own with passionate, unsettling, rule-breaking music. In this opera, he offers his critics not only a song written to their specifications, combining adherence to the rules with his own genius, but he actually shapes the entire opera as two Stollen and one long Abgesang. Acts one and two are approximately an hour each, matching the two of the song, and the final act, the Abgesang, is twice as long. Therefore, the entire opera is one long master song. He did stay by the rules. Pogner, Ava's father, opens the pre-trial contest with the announcement that the winner will have Ava's hand in marriage, providing she is willing. But she can only choose a Meistersinger as a husband. Walter asked to be admitted. The rules are read. The town clerk, Beckmesser, an older, bad-tempered Meistersinger and a suitor for Ava's hand, is instantly jealous of the young nobleman, sensing him as a rival. Unfortunately for Walter, Beckmesser is also the marker, the adjudicator of the songs for the contest. Walter takes his place to sing his trial song to see if he qualifies the next day. Beckmesser goes to the marker's box, warning Walter he will only be allowed seven faults. Quote, if he occur, incurs more than seven faults, then the knightly gentleman has sung his chant away. This said, Beckmeister seats himself in the marker's box out of sight. Now, Beckmesser is a special character in the entire history of opera and a bit of an enigma. It's far from clear, I think, what, people argue back and forth on this, what Wagner's real intention was with Beckmesser. In the second draft, Wagner named this character Hanslick, after the Viennese critic who was negative about Wagner's work. Was Wagner satirizing the Jews and Hanslick, or was this simply a buffo role? It is a comedy, after all, that has taken on many, many different interpretations over time. In the third draft of the opera, Hanslick becomes Sextus Beckmesser, a good Meistersinger name. Leading directors and singers today believe that the original intention was that Hanslick Beckmesser would be just a buffo role, the marker, a figure of fun, who would provide the comic balance to, to uh, Sachs. So Beckmesser can be played many ways. He is pompous, he's overbearing, he's stuck with the rules, he's pedantic, egotistical, and has no idea how to woo Ava, who he loves in his way. So comedy, satire, and parody can all be found in the characterization of Beckmesser, and I promise you have been over the years. I found an interesting review from one Carlos Droster in 1910 that said Beckmesser's role should be sung according to the vocal art. Quote, it is to be abhorred, he says, that some artists feel the role should be sung as if through clenched teeth, <laughs> thus giving the impression of blatant unnaturalness. Beckmesser is, after all, a man in a respected position in middle age, but not his dotage. He should not be performed as a grotesque caricature, caricature but as a serious person. 
So the pendulum has swung forth and back over time. But in the end, he is a character of fun who will not get the girl. That Beckmesser is hurt and humiliated in Wagner's score by Sachs and ultimately laughed at by the rest of the cast is true. Certainly there are shades of Mima in Beckmesser, both of whom in their respective operas break into a falsetto of sheer rage at certain points. In fact, the great uh, Alex Ross suggests that Wagner's leading villains, along with Mima, and he, he puts Beckmesser in this group, are Alberich, Hagen, and Klingsor, who were, quote, sometimes understood as cartoons of Jews. Today, these many shades of interpretation are decided by different directors. So Beckmesser then in the first act finds that Walter's untutored and impassioned song breaks all the rules and marks him out before he's even finished. The cobbler Hans Sachs, however, intervenes on Walter's behalf. I find the night song and melody new, but not confused. If he left our paths, at least he strode firmly and calmly. Beckmesser then insults Hans Sachs and says he should stick to shoemaking, making pointing out to everyone how badly his own shoes fit. Finally, Sachs is outvoted and Walter fails. Versungen und Vertan, sung out, refused. And the act ends in confusion as the Meister singers reject the frustrated and angry Walter. But I love this image because it, it captures everything. Hans Sachs uh, at his cobbling, the sign of the boot, can you see it is hanging on the front door, and his name is on the house. Beckmesser is singing his serenade to the woman in the window, who he thinks is Eva, but is actually Magdalena standing in for her. And then Eva and Volta are seen hiding under the, under the linden tree, waiting for a moment to elope. This was the original design for the first set. In this scene, however, it is now Hans Sachs who takes center stage. He is seen sitting outside his house, pondering the contest in Walter's rejected song. In one, I think, of the, uh, one of the loveliest music sections of the entire piece, the lilac monologue. Sachs thinks about Walter's song with its mood of love and youth and spring. The melody of the song stays in his head, he says. The bird who sang today Masters may feel dismay, but Hans Sachs is well content with him. Maestro Antonio Papano commented on this monologue, Was duftet doch der Fleder, the, the scent of the lilac, so mild, so full and strong, in which Sachs reflects on Walter's radical, rule-breaking song and the commotion it caused. This is what Papano said. Sachs is musing after the song trial, and the melody of Walter's song is repeating itself over and over in his mind. Sachs says, I cannot hold it, nor yet forget it. If I grasp it wholly, I cannot measure it. But then how should I grasp what seemed to me immeasurable? No rule seemed to fit it, and yet there was no fault in it. It seemed so old, and yet was so new. So here you have the greatest poem of his generation. This is Papano's words. Hans Sachs, a cobbler by trade, but a genius in songwriting in the old tradition, recognizing the power of the new, not throwing it away or ignoring it or becoming aggressive. 
it becomes his job to convince everybody not to be afraid of the new, to be open to the new. What a wonderful metaphor for society, Papano says. At one point, Sack says, you just have to listen more carefully. Wouldn't that be great if we all listened more carefully? So this is one of the simplest pages of the score, musically speaking, Papano goes on. It doesn't have the contrapuntal richness of the rest of the work. Wagner puts Walter's song in slow motion with different harmonic settings, and Sack speaks over it in a descending bass line. The song is boring deeper and deeper into his conscience, his soul, and actually into ours, because from the time you first hear that melody, you hear it again and again in different forms at different times, it also bores into our reception of it. Meister Singer is a clever piece in that there is an artificiality to it, but it's so craftily put together. I have many friends who are musicians who love Wagner, and they believe this is the greatest of all, orchestrally speaking. It's when things are simple that Wagner wants the message to really come through. Lena then tells Ava that Wagner failed the song contest, and she goes at once to Hans Sachs to find out what happened. Walter appears in the street, Ava runs to him, and they decide to elope together since he can't win the contest. This is definitely love at first sight. Walter tells her his men stand ready with horses at the gate. One wonders if Puccini used this line with De Grieux when he's planning his escape with Manon. Horses stand ready at the gate. Walter pulls out his sword, threatening to run through anyone who might try to prevent them leaving. Ava calms him down as they hide in the bushes because just then Beckmesser appears and Walter and Ava retreat. As Beckmesser approaches Hans Sachs, he launches, Sachs launches into his shoe song, the hilarious Schusterlied, with frequent interruptions from Beckmesser and comments from the hidden Ava and Walter. Beckmesser has come to serenade Ava. He asks for feedback from Hans Sachs on the song he's going to sing. They bicker for a while until finally Sachs says, if you sing, I'll note, I'll mark your song and further my work, which means in uh, fixing Beckmesser's shoes. There follows a truly farcical situation in which Beckmesser attempts to sing the serenade under Eva's window, not knowing it's Nina sitting up there in her place, while Sachs marks the faults by hitting his cobbler's last. The serenade is pure fast, totally ridiculing the would-be suitor. The action here is straight burlesque. Wagner slash Sachs is having fun at the expense of the unfortunate Beckmesser. In terms of style, you'll hear Beckmesser attempting to sing melismas. No young singer should attempt this. This is a sing uh, this role. It appears simple and they make fun of him, but technically it's a, a difficult sing. Um, you'll hear these melismas, these passages of multiple notes sung on just one syllable of the text, rather like a Gregorian chant, which is where it originated. So I'm going to show you this scene now. The, uh, you're going to see James Morris as Hans Sachs, Thomas Allen singing Beckmesser's Serenade. Um, and this is, of course, from the Otto Schenk production of 1993. <laughs> 
turns into a riot in the street uh, because David, mistakenly thinking 
Beckmesser is serenading his fiance, who's actually in the window. One of those confusing situations where there is an impromptu fight and general pandemonium until the night watchman is heard. Hark to what I say, good people, 11 strikes from every steeple. Defend you all from spectre and strife. Let no power of ill your souls affright. In Wagner's youth, the night watchman still went through the streets, calling out, lights out, praise the Lord. In actual, this, this actual tune came from uh, an actual watchman's call from the period with the bugle sound at the end. Um, this anchors the midsummer nights in the streets of Nuremberg firmly in place. The night watchman bids everyone good night and calm descends. Order has been restored. And this is an interesting clip because the uh, singer, the night watchman, is John Relia in an early small role part of his career. And so ends the second act. Wagner wrote of the prelude to the third act, this is the solemn song with which Sachs greeted Luther and the Reformation, a song which won the real Hans Sachs considerable popularity and fame. The final act is made up of two scenes in Sachs' workshop and at the festival. Sachs is reading a book in his uh, shop and in his great soliloquy sings van, van, van. It's very hard to translate this quintessential German word. Music scholars suggest a combination of divine discontent, illusion, both false and ennobling, destructive disorder as well as artistic order. The tension between order and disorder, between take a choice, right? <laughs> There's a lot of, lot of choices here. It's, it's a, one of those ephemeral words. It can also refer to the relationship between the verbal and musical expression, since a major metaphor in this opera is about art and the wedding of poetry and music, traditional and innovative styles. So this word really does encapsulate all that. In this act, I think Hans Sachs comes into his own. You don't see much of him in the first act. Um, the evolution comes slowly. He does become the central figure I think rather as Wotan superseded Siegfried in the Ring series, so Hans Sachs takes on greater importance. Sachs' song, and we're going to talk about this, we're going to read it and hear it. Um, Sachs' song, Wagner said in a letter to the king in 1869, is the bitter lament of a resigned man who shows the world a cheerful, energetic countenance. That cry from the hidden depths has been understood by Eva 
and so profoundly was her heart pierced by it, she would have fled away that she may hear no more of the song, which on the surface was so cheerful. When Sack sang of being a cobbler and a poet too, the listening Ava says, that song grieves me, I know not why. She and um, Sachs have this amazing relationship, which we'll talk about. She alone, I think, really recognizes his true greatness and his love, not just for her, but his compassion for his fellow men and the state of the world itself, as is borne out by her final gesture at the end. In writing to King Ludwig, Wagner said of this aria, the third act on which I am working is van van uberon van. This theme is brought out everywhere. It is the theme which rules my own life and the lives of all noble hearts. Would we have to struggle, suffer, and make sacrifices if the world were not ruled by Van? The monologue, we don't call this a vag, uh, aria per se and now, um, the monologue is in three parts. It first decries the fact that all over the world Van causes war and chaos, he's thinking of the night before on the ride in the street. Then comes the hymn to Midsummer's Day and the greatness of the city he loves, a sort of reverie on civic pride and German festivals. And finally, how Van could and should be harnessed for good. So this is the great uh, Van Van Uberol Van. Madness, madness, everywhere madness. Wherever I look searchingly in city and world chronicles to seek out the reason why, till they draw blood, people torment and flay each other in useless, foolish anger. This is ringing contemporary bells. <laughs> no one has reward or thanks for it, driven to flight. He thinks he is hunting, hears not his own cry of pain when he digs into his own flesh. He thinks he is giving himself pleasure. Who will give it its name? It is the old madness without which nothing can happen, nothing whatever. It halts, if it halts somewhere in its course, it is only to gain new strength in sleep. Suddenly it awakens and then we see who can master it. How peacefully with its staunch customs, contented in deed and work lies in the middle of Germany, my dear Nuremberg. But one evening late, he's talking about the night before, to prevent a mishap caused by youthful ardor, a man himself knows not what to do. A cobbler in his shop plucks at the threads of madness, and how soon in alleys and streets it begins to rage. Man, woman, journeyman, and child fall on each other as if crazed and blind. And if madness prevails, it must now rain blows with cuts and thrashings to quench the fire of anger. We're talking about anger here, how it starts from nothing and a silly little, silly little thing and suddenly everyone's up in arms. God knows how that befell. A goblin must have helped. A glowworm could not find its mate. It set the trouble in motion. It was the elder tree, Midsummer Eve. But now has come Midsummer Day. Now let us see how Hans Sachs manages finally to guide the madness so as to perform a nobler work. For if madness won't leave us in peace, even here in Nuremberg, then let it be in the service of such works as are seldom successful in plain activities, and never so without a touch of madness. 
Having read that now, we're going to watch uh, Gerald Finley sing this aria, a shift from James Morris, with the London Philharmonic, Vladimir Yurovsky is the conductor in a David McVicker performance at uh, Glyndebourne. Ein Mann weiß sich nicht nach. 
seinem Lahnen, zieht an der Sahnes Fahnen. Die voll auf Platzen und Fahnen, ich will an zu raten. An Heimgetränken, Kindern, und wie es der Wahn gesiegnet, an Kurs Just before I leave, I want to play you one other recording from that 1939 uh, recording. The, the, this singer, um, Friedrich Shaw, was renowned as the greatest of all time, Hans Sachs, long before my time. And it is from 1939. Notice the difference you, f you feel listening. We're only going to listen to this. Listen, listen for the warmth in this singer's voice. This uh, interpretation is very intense. It's a much more intense sax that you'd normally get because he is sort of a broken heart under that service. It's very intense, very Gerald Finley. He's so great in this role. Um, but this one is all about warmth and softness. And listen how the strings, the conductor, Leinsdorf, brings the strings to the fore, flooding the lines with more warmth. Just a, a minute and a half of this before we break. Thank you. One, one, one. 
So you can hear the pain in this voice without the intensity of the other interpreter. And James Morris's every singer makes this very personal. And I must say that Michael Vorley, who is singing here now, is so extraordinary in this role. He really embodies everything that is uh, Hans Sachs. Thank you, thank you. That was lecturer Desiree Mays in the first of two episodes discussing Wagner's Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg. Be sure to join us next week for episode two. To keep up with all things opera, be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.